Especially of an animal in a wild state after escape from captivity or domestication. Alcatraz, Arab Spring, one billion rising. Freedom schools, the Maroons, rebellion thriving. We've been rising since the dawn of creation. Sun in the blood of our veins, liberation runs from Muhammad. Welcome to Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I'm your host, Anjali Nathupadia. We begin with a content note or trigger warning. Here at Feral Visions, we go deep, and that often means courageously addressing white supremacist, imperialist, heteropatriarchal, capitalist, settler, colonial violence in order to support healing and transformation. Bypassing isn't an option. The only way is through. The time for denial is over, and today's a great day to keep it real. Amidst the show's focus on unapologetic truth-telling, then, please, practice excellent self and community care while listening. The Yoga Industrial Complex One of the greatest modern examples of poison fronting as medicine the capitalist colonialism ever produced. Materialist profiteering off of pain. A snare for communities needing healing and transformation. Do you ever wonder why overwhelmingly bougie white women monopolize what gets called yoga outside of South Asia? And why South Asians are practically invisibilized? Like... When you hear someone talking about a yoga chick, that's now universally code for stupid white girl. I'll say it, we all know it. Have you ever wondered how this affects South Asians? How did one of the greatest wisdom traditions in all of recorded human history come to be associated with privileged people's vanity and shallow consumerism? Why white people and sometimes confused POC, adopt brownface with bindis and costumes and appropriated South Asian names, then some other ignorant people actually associate that behavior with being conscious or evolved or spiritual. Conscious racism? Oh, that reminds me of liberals. Speaking of which, then liberals assert that a solution is diversifying that fuckery. Like, hey, fat and disabled and POC can sell the pants and asana centrism. Let's spread that poison. Then some peddlers have realized maybe they're doing something sketchy and try to rebrand their thievery so that they can continue stealing and distorting for their own personal benefit instead of cutting their losses and moving on. It's a hot mess. Neocolonialism can be immensely confusing, folks. Sounds like an invitation to learn about co-optation, spiritual bypassing, and commercialization 101. To support our practicing such discernment, I'm stoked to be in dialogue with my friend Maloney Thakrar. 
were both dropouts of what was advertised as a social justice-oriented yoga teacher training in occupied Huchen, aka Oakland. Realizing we'd let the benefit of the doubt get the best of us, we chose to leave the program when the anti-intellectualism, neo-colonialism, and insults to our ancestral wisdom became way too stressful. You know, when you need to meditate after your so-called meditation class because that eat, pray, love shit was so counter-revolutionary. Melonius, the founder and principal of Mind the Gender Gap Consulting, her consultancy practice is grounded in one key principle. We cannot achieve social and gender equity without addressing inequities and biases in research and data. As an advocate, strategist, capacity builder, evaluator, and data storyteller, she strives to create a safe space for those who are often unseen and unheard to share their stories in the way they wish to tell them. In doing so, she strategically leverages research and knowledge to challenge social norms and catalyze social change. She draws on her varied professional and academic experiences working with foundations, nonprofit organizations, governmental agencies, university settings, startups, and research institutions on issues related to diversity and inclusion, effective philanthropy, youth development, employment discrimination, workforce and economic development, health equity, fair housing, child and human trafficking, and gender equity. Maloney holds an MSc in Gender and Social Policy from the London School of Economics and an MPP from the Australian National University. As a first-generation-born American who has studied and lived in four foreign countries, she brings a well-informed global perspective to her work. Inspired by her experiences as a PPIA fellow and Rotary Ambassadorial Scholar, she continues to advocate for human rights and social change on local, national, and international levels. Good afternoon and welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing well, thank you. Uh, and this dialogue has been a very long time coming, so it's really an honor to be it able has. to <laughs> sit down it with has. you and right, do this thing. <laughs> It's uh, been going on two years now, Anjali. <laughs> oh my goodness! Uh, let alone lifetimes, right? So, yeah, it's I'm true. It's so true. so stoked that we're finally making the time to get into it. Uh, of course, right? We could talk about a number of different sort of intentions or points behind having this dialogue. Certainly, encouraging cultural humility for folks. Um, raising awareness about the miseducation of so-called yoga trainings in the U.S., the danger of people sort of gullibly taking what they're receiving in those spaces as truth, some of the negative impacts of that cultural trend and of the trainings more broadly, um, and then inviting people, of course, to think critically about what knowledge it is they're receiving and from where, for sure, so instilling a sense of curiosity um, and encouraging yeah. folks to ask questions around all of that. So to begin to, among many others, right, and first and foremost, actually, if you ask me, just creating a space for South Asians in the United States to be able to actually um, set aside for a second centralizing whiteness or set aside for a second um, centralizing consumers of a product such as what gets marketed as yoga in the U.S. for us just to be able to pause for ourselves and check in right. around, right? right, what in the hell this cultural phenomena is, what we um, perceive it to be, 
what it affects are on us, what its effects are on our communities. So with that in mind, I'm just curious to know um, what sort of initial remarks or feelings or sort of questions or ideas you might have to begin to get going with this dialogue. Right. I feel like the yoga industrial complex is so ubiquitous that when you say the the words yoga industrial complex, some people don't even know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, they always view the practice of yoga as a a place for healing and grounding and um, self-care and at the same time don't realize that those very spaces and places can be a place that can cause great trauma and pain for people, which is unfortunately how we cross paths. Interestingly enough. Right. Um, South Asians are invisibilized. And there is this one remark, I don't know if you remember this, that one of her classmates said, well, you know, I've always thought of that as a, an African-American, but I never realized <laughs> that Southeast Asians can think that too. And what? That was a problematic <laughs> statement because one, there's this distinction between South Asians and Southeast Asians, but that's a whole other podcast. It's a really messy, tricky space to navigate because I am all for people who, are, who prioritize self-care and <laughs> engage in a practice that um, is grounding and nurturing to them. But as you were saying earlier, it's also about how do we um, encourage more meaningful dialogue and more curiosity when it comes to these spaces and the level, addressing the level of miseducation that occurs and how pervasive it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. So in terms of that comment that you mentioned that I've also never forgotten, um, (laughs) right, it is so very interesting the way that, okay, some groups are racialized more obviously in the United States based upon this black-white binary that's been been inherited that then invisibilizes all of the rest of us, right? And Mm -hmm. so um, specifically... In a conversation that happened to take place within um, a space that was calling itself a yoga teacher training, when some folks were hearing the two of us in dialogue and talking about some of what we were perceiving as South Asian women, another student who identifies as a black woman paused and actually said, you know, I always talk about myself as a black woman, but I've never even thought, oh, South Asian women. Like, you're a group of people also. And that might seem obvious to a lot of other people. And yet, again, within this right black-white binary, particularly in terms of how we've been racialized, a lot of folks actually might not have stopped to realize not everyone actually falls within that binary. And what does that mean when we have conversations about social justice and or decolonization where so often right white supremacy is perceived to be of course a major target in need of change um, a site and a source of oppression and injustice and so then right folks that are racialized as people of color can often actually instead of having an on-point solidarity praxis or standing in allyship with one another 
can just sort of presume that they can do no harm. So I appreciate you bringing that comment up because it's a really important entry point into talking about how POC on POC appropriation is real, right? And we need to, instead of continuing to, like we started off discussing centralizing whiteness in all of the conversations, at what point are we going to move on and actually talk about how communities of color can be standing in solidarity with one another instead of just seeing the bad example that so many white people perpetuate all around us And then quite often, actually, especially in terms of the liberal politics of diversity and inclusion, just try to mimic or replicate that. So get as big of a slice of the sort of toxic pie in front of them as they can, as opposed to actually stepping back and saying, you know what, I don't want to self-righteously appropriate or steal someone else's culture just because I'm surrounded by the bad habits of white people doing that around me. I know that I can be more respectful towards other communities of color in particular. I'm not trying to be that guy. I know that we're capable of actually building coalitions and alliances um, and supporting one another the way that our ancestors have in a way that is so much more respectful. So honoring, Mm -hmm. right, a huge issue on the table here with the yoga industrial complex is again, um, non-South Asian people of color stealing some of our ancestral traditions in part based on this, let's say, less than ideal white example that they're surrounded by. And then that sort of self-righteously fronting as great, you know, so whether how many examples could we talk about here? So the, you know, alleged decolonizing yoga website being one that's run by a white person where South Asians with any critical perspective have gotten kicked off. But if you see a non-South Asian person of color self-righteously stepping up as an authority figure that's lauded in the name of this liberal diversity and inclusion, right? Or the decolonizing yoga journal that's come out of Cal that the last time I checked initially didn't seem to have any South Asians on the editorial board. (laughs) So it's like people just using language about decolonization without knowing a thing about colonialism and then just presuming if you see faces of color, that's great. Like if there were just say black people or Asians teaching hula, that would be awesome. But you forgot that Hawaiians are a people. (laughs) I mean, the power dynamics, not exactly the same, but when are we going to move beyond that black, white binary to get more real, um, to be more honest historically about the context that we're in? Yeah. I, I feel like the binary you're just talking about in many ways, uh, reflects the gender binary. Um, and this over there's just inclination to oversimplify the matter and not really have a a nuanced, complex understanding of of those issues. I almost feel like we should back up a little bit and sort of (laughs) clearly define what cultural appropriation is. Because like I like I mentioned before, you know, when I when I uh, say the words yoga industrial complex, people don't uh, often don't know what I'm talking about. And then when I try to <laughs> attempt to explain, it's even more, they even get more confused. So, mm-hmm. yeah, no, that's um, a really important point to bring up. So how about we get into some of our understandings of that? So certainly I could mm-hmm. share um, a few things to get us going. So one, cultural appropriation involves that same sort of um, extractivism 
and entitlement that we see decimating the planet right now. So manifested Mm -hmm. in another space, to be sure. Um, So whether it's, again, fossil fuel extraction, people say in the United States in particular, so it's important to get clear around where we're having this dialogue, saying, of course I'm entitled to extracting whatever I want from anywhere else on the planet, from whomever else on the planet. So it's also consistent with rape culture, right? Colonialism Mm -hmm. as rape culture is something that it's important for people to understand better these days. So it's that same sort of one major foundation of understanding cultural appropriation is that entitlement. Something else, again, is that kind of extractivism. A third element that it's important to name, if you ask me, would be that it's non-consensual. And it's important to name the context in which cultural appropriation occurs. So we have some sense of history. So we're not just kind of playing in a vacuum without any kind of context, right? And so as well on that front, right, appropriation is most likely to happen and most dangerous if it is, say, peoples that have been colonized or that are still being colonized that are being stolen from. So, of course, that is perfectly in sync with the example of the yoga industrial complex, right? Mm. Many folks, again, in the U.S. just want to buy something as consumers that they feel like will personally benefit them when, again, they don't even think about South Asians. Like, it would be hard for them or peculiar to even imagine, what does yoga have to do with South Asia or South Asians? Especially when in the dominant cultural imaginary, um, to make it plain, we might as well just call this out on the table, people know yoga is associated with stupid white women in the U.S., with airheads, right, with ditzy white women. It's an insult. So we see also even so many people of color talking about Mm. folks as yoga chicks insulting um, bougie white women. And so also so few people are having a conversation about what are the effects of that on actual South Asians? How blasphemous is that when, yeah, they're making lots of things look bad in the world, but this they don't actually monopolize <laughs> this tradition, right. nor actually have anything to do with it besides their PR and their marketing gimmicks, right? right. Um, so also, again, there's that power dynamic in terms of access to and control of representation that has a lot to do with appropriation. It's also one last thing I would mention here, although there's so much else we can get into, um, and I'd love mm-hmm. to hear your ideas about appropriation sure. also, but um, right. is there's such a pronounced mythology in 2017 in the United States, um, especially in the age of technology that we're in today, about cultural sharing, people presuming that it's even possible on some horizontal, consensual sort of playing field for people to share and appreciate and respect one another's cultures through that is a lot of the kind of obfuscation or mythology that appropriation gets justified or rationalized through. Here's what's wrong with that for listeners that might not understand the impossibility of that in this moment in time. One, if folks want to share cultures, so you get to share your culture. A white person doesn't steal from someone else and be like, look at what I stole. Here, let me share this with you. So just so people can understand who's sharing, who's what, and who gave you permission and why, and why would you ever want to be that guy to begin with? So there's right that also that needs to be named in terms of context so people don't just really superficially make an excuse for thievery through saying, oh, no, I'm just sharing because I'm so respectful. Complete agreement in what you just said. I think the other element 
for me when it comes to defining cultural appropriation is there's this element in which the dominant group benefits in some way. Mm-hmm. And so when you see and when you look at the yoga industrial complex and the over commercialization of yoga, it's definitely these underpinnings of capitalism that are driving this phenomenon. It's just really disturbing to to see how that's unfolded uh, as yoga has become more trendy and commonplace. Taking very sacred texts and figures and exoticizing our culture in a way that I have found to be completely disrespectful. Uh, I think I have yet to walk into a yoga class that is taught by a non-South Asian and have uh, witnessed the yoga teacher pronounce the Sanskrit words correctly. <laughs> I know that that was an upcoming, a re-emerging theme in the in the so-called training we we were a part of. Sure. Um, and you know these are sacred words, uh, and I just I don't I understand why people think it's okay um, to chant in a language they have no understanding of and claim to be spiritual and fronting as spiritual. You know, I'm really torn because that doesn't mean that I'm all for just focusing on the physical elements of yoga because that's also problematic, right? Mm -hmm. um, Because there is this deep spiritual and religious component to it, you know, just because they managed to mess, mess up (laughs) <laughs> the spiritual part again and again um, doesn't mean oh the simple answer is okay just cut that out of the curriculum right <laughs> I know you've been talking for some time of how to put a moratorium on yoga <laughs> um, perhaps the alternative is uh, just not calling it yoga and you can call it something else you can take out the the sacred text and our sacred words and sacred gods and goddesses. Uh, you can make it your own, um, but just please don't call it yoga. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's something actually that one student in particular that I'm working with right now that has been sort of unlearning some of this neocolonial appropriative non-consensual fuckery, to use the technical term, um, has been sitting with right now is, you know, so... Yes, I'm definitely not calling my practice yoga anymore. And if I'm still doing some of the things that I learned under the auspices of yoga, is there any way in which that can be salvageable or redeemable? Or what does it mean to disentangle yourself from all of the layers and levels of injustice that people are socialized into within the yoga industrial complex today? So whether that's, say, in right... Southern California, where people have their forms of what Jesus stretching, I forget what the term is that they use, where it's like a Christianized form of alleged yoga. (laughs) Really? This is a thing? (laughs) Oh, this is totally a thing. I've got to forward you a documentary about this. Yeah, it's so... Uh, hilarious and ridiculous on so many fronts. Um, So then, right, you're not just engaging the asana centrism um, and you're not just trying to, right, financialize the sacred. Of course, all of those things are problematic unto themselves. Um, But it's such a real question. This is part of the point of the winter class that I'm teaching, right, that is a sort of almost space for folks that have absorbed so much propaganda from some of these sort of new age and self-help and yoga industrial complex related 
sites of poison fronting as medicine to begin to get clear around what all of the levels and layers of lies are that they have internalized within those spaces, um, to unlearn, to then be able to make space for a practice that could actually be supportive of collective healing. And not, like you said, consistent with rape. Oh, well, I benefited from it. I got off on it. This benefits me. What do you mean talk about other people? What do you mean the yoga industrial complex could impact South Asians. Shouldn't they be grateful? Better a guru than a terrorist, right? You know, so really taking seriously. It's rape culture that would have you being like, but I benefit from this. So of course, I'm going to keep doing it. Like we're capable of so much more than that level of narcissism and that level of selfishness to make it plain. Um, I want to use some really clear, strong language here to help people understand. And so if it means talking about, again, individualism, if it means talking about opportunistic profiteering, then we can use that language just to make sure that people understand what we're talking about, to try to make it really plain. Uh, So yeah, thank you for bringing up some of those pieces. Also, again, riffing off of the commercialization aspects of cultural appropriation that you spoke to. Thank you for bringing that capitalist element up. We've got to talk about the political economy of yoga in the West, Mm -hmm. so to speak, today. Um, How Mm -hmm. taking it back, even as much as we are invisibilized and people don't understand, right, that yoga, the yoga industrial complex has a negative effect on South Asians, taking it back to the continent, taking it back to the motherland. Do people even think about how this multi-billion dollar industry is negatively affecting what's actually being taught in South Asia right now? You want to talk about Mm -hmm. a space that's still ravaged by neocolonialism. People are hungry because of that non-consensual, extractive, right, Western fuckery known as centuries of colonialism that our families are still dealing with and then some more westerners come through wanting to take again and there is a technical term for that folks so just to get crystal clear and to learn it's called colonialism right it's called neo-colonialism and then they think Mm -hmm. or do they don't even think about the impact that that's going to have on what is and is not being taught right so the poisoning and the diluting of our wisdom traditions that some of us actually have a responsibility to be tending to, to be stewarding, to be nourishing, even if for other people this might just be a trend that they're playing with to feel more exotic before they return to teaching Pilates or whatever the next hip thing is a decade or two from now. So thank you again for bringing that commercialized aspect up. It also seems like so few people in the yoga industrial complex got the teaching about a critique of materialism in the studio or the gym where they allegedly learned anything about yoga. So they're more busy selling accessories and pants instead of understanding how totally incommensurate that is with our traditions. Right, right. Because it is quite shocking, like how exclusive and expensive some of these classes are. You know, that isn't aligned with, you know, traditional yoga values and, and, and the practice. And so it's just sort of mind boggling to me when I see, see that. And I, I don't know if you remember this, I was looking at it back at our notes, but um, one of the teachers in our course, who is supposedly assigned as my mentor, she had, she was actually surprised that I was working full time while doing the teacher training program. And I'm like, oh, so this is like 
a thing where people are treating this as a vocation or a career um, and not realizing that how problematic it is to profit off this practice and the extent to which they're being miseducated. Um, and I think you as an educator are much better at navigating those conversations than me. But when the blinders are on so strongly, you know, the great degree of brainwashing that occurs, it's really hard for me to gauge and figure out how do I even begin to navigate this conversation or engage in dialogue with this person. And in most cases, I, I don't engage in dialogue because I don't have the time and energy to explain how damaging this practice can be. And, you know, the other thing that's tricky is I've seen so many people be like, oh, yoga is my calling or yoga, I'm, I'm helping people heal themselves through the practice of yoga. And not realizing the damage that can occur as a result of that. And you clearly, we both clearly remember the one class where there was obviously not enough care taken when explaining the potential, not, not enough care uh, taken when explaining the mind-body connection and how certain poses can be very triggering. You, you know, the, it's just really shocking to me to the extent that, that this happens and how prevalent it is in the industry. Yeah, it's just incredible how ill-prepared alleged yoga teachers are to minimize harm, right? Right, uh, right. And that right. unto itself, just at the most very basic level, even if you're only thinking individualistically as opposed to about cultural harm more broadly or any kind of bigger picture context, it's just yeah. absolutely astounding the literal damage that can be done to students. So whether it's physically, whether it's emotionally, like you said, in terms of a lack of rigor attention to sequencing just about anything in a capitalist commercial context in the US gets commodified then there's this sort of um, focus on liability when you're talking about community accountability instead of care instead of respect instead of sacrality any kind of deeper right or higher sense of ways that we could relate to one another or again to invoke one language community accountability let alone write responsibility as a teacher, which is such a profound vacation for folks that actually are teachers. But instead, I mean, like we have seen with people that actually advertise themselves as yoga teachers, literally saying as alleged mentors to other people, yeah, I mean, do whatever you want, provided you're not liable, provided or up to the point that you're not, you don't have to worry about getting sued. Right. And again, it's like, that's not even, you know, for some of us that actually have ethics or for some of us that actually have any kind of grounding around morality to invoke one language, that bar is so low. If it even exists, that's practically a non-existent bar. If you ask me, that's just covering your ass in terms of liability. That has nothing to do with caring about the people that you're working with. But again, when a practice such as yoga even just asana, right? If it was possible to parse that out from any other element of the practice gets commercialized, then of course you see that kind of element, right? There's a profit motive. People get in on it that might not have otherwise. And then their relationship with the people that they're working with um, is one of making money and not getting sued, right? Right. Yeah, that, that reminds me of there was a very brief 
interaction between the teacher at one of the the training days and a student just asking I don't even remember what the question was but her comment was oh well as long as you don't get sued it's okay (laughs) so um, and it was a very offhand comment but those offhand comments can be very telling of what's what you know what's really going on in terms of how people are approaching this practice and work especially as a as a teacher so I yeah I'm just completely (laughs) at a loss sometimes when you when I witness things like that like did did that just happen Mm -hmm. and so there's just been such a great amount of both like you were saying before like physical harm I know someone that hurt his shoulder it took several months to heal just simply because he was at a uh had gone to a yoga class and apparently wasn't given, you know, appropriate um, guidance and instructions when doing certain poses. And, you know, I recall him saying that the, the teacher got very defensive, like, well, and so to not even show up with a sense of humility or accountability in this practice is, is also what I find disturbing. Because, you know, there was a couple instances, for example, we attempted very, <laughs> I would say very dip- diplomatically at first, trying to have a, a conversation with some of the teachers about how, you know, words were being mispronounced, certain texts weren't given the level of respect that they should have been given, how certain elements completely unrelated to yoga a traditional yoga practice for being incorporated into this so-called training. Uh, and I was looking at your notes, like there was like your summary was, of course I'm miracles, of course I'm Jack Cornfield. <laughs> um, the five elements of- stopped. <laughs> exactly, like this right, is just- like what does five elements have to do with anyway? No, nothing, um, unless your entry point into yoga was a new age bookstore. So you think this is somehow similar to tarot, or you think this is somehow related to traditional Chinese medicine? Which right. again, uh, if you had a clue about what you were talking about, to be crystal clear to help people understand, you'd never make that kind of mistake. And again, using really clear language strong language very intentionally to help listeners understand that might not have ever thought critically um, with any context historically or in terms of power dynamics um, around what we're talking about. So yeah, that, thank you so much for bringing that up because it's such an important part of the sort of new age distortion that so many people are saturated in for sure on the West Coast, especially in a place like California in the Bay Area, right, is kind of ground zero for this. Right. Um, Where well-intended people receive such astounding disinformation and miseducation where some of, again, our ancestral traditions get conflated with the most embarrassing fluff, right? So then what are some of the consequences of that if folks are down to reflect with a little bit of attention and dedication to think critically, we can do that, that's okay. Some of our ancestral traditions, again, get associated with folks that are not even trying to be the sharpest tools in the shed, so to speak. So then other people think, oh, yoga must be some quackery, or it must be fluff, or it must be anti-intellectual, because it's been associated with all of this other ridiculousness, right? So the kind of commercialized 
products that you would see in a new age bookstore. So then it's almost like guilt by association. That very association has people then presuming that some of our traditions um, are less illegitimate, essentially, are lacking in intelligence, aren't grounded in the depth of philosophy and the depth of rigor that they are because they have been co-opted and poisoned through people taking them, again, like you said, that don't even have any kind of linguistic training to understand what they're talking about. And then they have, right, there's such cultural arrogance there as opposed to humility. Um, And then they allege to be teaching other people. And around that, right, for folks that know anything about metaphysical practice, so in a lot of traditions, you'll hear people saying things like words are spells, spelled. So if folks know anything about the importance of sound, and again, not just in South Asian traditions, but throughout the world in so many different traditions, like you just don't know what you're messing with if you're consistently chanting something inappropriately (laughs) that you're not even pronouncing properly at your own risk, beloved. It's just astounding. Again, the damage that people could be doing based upon this miseducation, as opposed to staying in their lane with any kind of humility, stepping back and, you know, for so many people, frankly, um, this kind of consumptive and rapacious taking of exoticized traditions is also a form of bypassing what their ancestral responsibilities are in this moment in time. So not for everyone. Of course, there are some people that are drawn to or have an affinity to what gets called yoga in the U.S., that are grounded in their own ancestral traditions, that actually understand their own cultures, but certainly writ large, especially with folks that are racialized as white, but also with um, some communities of color that have tragic, right, histories of being severed from their ancestry, so often it can be easier to buy a commercial product that has been sold to you as having some kind of depth to it, instead of doing that hard work of decolonization, of actually figuring out where you come from, what the ancestral wisdom is that you have a responsibility to be stewarding, to then be able to, again, understand more deeply where you come from and to be able to pass that on to future generations. Of course, that's harder than buying something at Pier 1 Imports, right? Right. Um, Than buying something on a commercial market that you might be saturated in. But that definitely doesn't mean that somehow it is a good thing to do to invoke, right, the kind of language of value judgments that is so ubiquitous within the society, healthy, just because it's popular, beneficial within the bigger scheme of things. Right. And then the other part of that is, you know, there's this practice where you can't teach yoga unless you're a certified yoga teacher, right? But who is creating this certification training? Mm-hmm. And when you, you look at the institution, mm-hmm. or whatever you want to call it, really, I don't know what to call it. Right, right. Um, we can name names, the Yoga Alliance, the so-called Yoga yeah, Alliance. Yoga Alliance. Yeah, right. there are yeah. no South right. Asians represented sure. on this sure. so-called alliance. Sure. Um, I, I have yet to see them be allies to South Asians in sure. that regard. Sure. Or consulting South Asians in that regard. Right. So claiming to be an expert on a tradition that you have no rooted history in Mm. and then, you know, creating an institutionalized credential that is thereby made mandatory for someone to, (laughs) to enter this practice is just, 
Like, how did this happen? How did we get here? And Mm -hmm. that so many people enter this space without even examining or questioning who is providing this type of information or misinformation, who is doing this miseducation, and not even for a moment just stepping back and thinking, like, is is it possible that this is not true? <laughs> mm-hmm. If students have no other context to work from, like if this is their first exposure to these traditions and practices, then, you know, in that sense, I, I can see how easily they can get brainwashed, but it's, it doesn't make it any less disturbing to, to the extent that, degree into which this is happening. Right. On that front, would you be down to share some of your observations around how in the hell people get into this field of allegedly teaching yoga in the U.S.? Because we've certainly had some reflections about that in the past, and I think it's important to name because, again, so many people frankly, again, to use very strong language to support people's understanding, just don't know um, what it would look like in South Asia for a lineage to actually be passed down from generation to generation. So they just kind of have naturalized or normalized this commercial transaction that is ubiquitous in the U.S. But what has been your observation of what draws folks to teach so-called yoga in the U.S.? So uh, what I have seen sort of anecdotally, you know, I haven't done any sort of formal research, but what I've seen anecdotally uh, or observed is a lot of people enter the yoga practice when they're going through a difficult time in their life. Like they use it as a way to self-heal. Once they come out the other side, they feel this calling to heal other people through this practice. And, um, you know, it's, it's akin to, you know, why people, why some people not, but, uh, enter the, the field of counseling or therapy, for example, as a vocation, usually they have had some, um, adversity they face in life and then gone to therapy and seen the benefits of therapy and then feel this calling to, to do that for others. I think what's, what's tricky in both scenarios is you you really have to be very clear on where you're at in your healing process and how and also be clear on how self-aware you are in where you're at and your your capacity to take on that role cuz i i think of whether it's a therapist role or a counseling role or a teacher role you know it's a huge responsibility and that's something um, that should be taken seriously. And it, what, what's interesting to me now that I think about it is when we enrolled in this so-called training, I don't feel like there was any, there was an application process, yes, but there was never really an a, a assessment of any kind to sort of determine if, you know, is this the best time for you to to be entering this training. The, I mean, the real answer is never because it's so-called training, but (laughs) Um, is this training the right thing to be entering our lives rather? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But, you know, and so that, I think that's sort of almost an indication of how profit driven this industry is like, you know, you would think 
there would be some sort of element of assessing one's capacity or one's ability before embarking on such a training. But it, it, it doesn't seem the case. And I actually, have, I don't think I've ever heard of that for anyone that's done any so-called teacher training, mm-hmm. yoga teacher training program. Mm-hmm. For sure. Right. Yeah, it's just, um, again, astonishing and utterly unsurprising what little so-called yoga in the U.S. has to do with yoga and how illuminating it is in terms of the context in which it comes about. So the right hyper commercialization, the oversimplification, um, the manifestation of oppression that fronts as healing, so typical of the kind of Orwellian doublespeak that we're saturated in and so many other facets of society today, too. Um, So par for the course in the current cultural context that we find ourselves in right now. Yeah, and and going back to your question again of why people decide to do a yoga teacher training, a so-called yoga teacher training program, is uh, they, you know, there are some people that um, view this as a new career or vocational move for them, which is in part why the teacher was surprised that I worked full time while doing this training. And so I think that's, you know, just um, interesting to watch in terms of what we we're talking about earlier in terms of capitalism and commercialization, where they charge a ridiculous amount of money for these trainings with this sort of promise or false promise that you can make a living as a yoga teacher. And, you know, there, there are probably some people that, that, that is the case, but I, I would imagine that's not the case for most people. Mm-hmm. And so often, again, just to make it plain, there's the notion that it's a sort of easy, fluffy job. Well, it's cheaper to do one of these trainings than going back to grad school. And so, again, that just demonstrates also what an insulting approach to actual yoga the industry takes in the United States and in the West more broadly today. The notion that that's an easy thing to do for people that don't feel like studying, for people that just feel like doing something quick to be able to make some money, it's seen as available. And again, if these kinds of trainings are flooding the commercial market like they are, of course, it's going to be more likely that someone might go down that kind of channel that has been presented to them by the capitalists that they're surrounded by, as opposed to taking seriously so many other possibilities. Right. Right. So far as how folks posture and perform that do get into the industry, one element that we haven't talked about yet is brown facing, and we just have to go there. So I would be very (laughs) less ridiculous. Right. Sometimes you need to clearly uh, define what you're talking about. Oh, I'll go <laughs> there. I'm yeah. pretty sure some people haven't heard about brown facing before. Yeah. So thank you for that invitation. <laughs> Let us go there, right? So the yeah. fake Indian names, right? Um, the rocking mm-hmm. the bendies, the pretending that you get to write. Um, dress up in costumes like this is not Halloween other people's cultures are <laughs> never costumes for right. other people to take from right I mean we could have imagine right um, can no someone way. do this immediately please a wall of shame with the thousands and thousands and thousands of 
faces and names of so-called yoga teachers outside of South Asia that are not South Asian, that have fake Indian names, that are always rocking the regalia, the jewelry, the alleged, right, costumery and the like that pretend, I mean, pretendians to make it plain. Um, So akin to, so I'm using this language of brownwashing, riffing off of um, from a different historical context and a different power dynamic, a somewhat similar theme historically, which is, right, the theme of folks dressing up racially, invoking racist stereotypes to benefit themselves in other moments in time too. And of course, I should also mention here that another Feral Visions interview that I'm doing at the end of the week is with Dr. Philip Deloria, specifically talking about the body of work that he's been compiling for decades based upon his Yale historical series text Plain Indian that is about the history of white settlers overwhelmingly, but settlers of all colors, of all races in the U.S. pretending to be American Indian from the Boston Tea Party up through the counterculture of the 60s and 70s up through the New Age. So a similar theme also playing out with plain Indian as in from India, South Asian. So that's a little bit of what I'm talking about. So brown face, almost akin to black face, for example, although of course it's important to name that there are different nuances and subtleties with these different examples for sure. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So I feel like you have had more encounters with this than I have. And do you have a sense of why people do this? Because <laughs> I just don't, um, I don't understand. I feel like in part it is, and this is sad, but um, if we ask, and you know, this is something that I would love to see some folks that are racialized as white taking seriously, um, doing the work in their communities to heal this fuckery, asking, right, why is it that we steal other people's cultures to try to make ourselves seem more exotic or make ourselves seem more interesting, maybe to distance ourselves from the white supremacy that we're actually practicing during this performance itself? What precisely is going on there? But I do know that for lots of folks, it sure seems like, and again, this is speculation for sure, and there needs to be research on this immediately. I've been wanting to write the plain Indian book um, about South Asians for since college, over a dozen right. years now, but I haven't done it yet. One, distancing themselves from uh, the internalized white supremacy that they're actually, right, inadvertently manufacturing and perpetuating through the very performance, like I just named. So, Mm -hmm. you know, this is almost like when it comes to class or socioeconomic status, when you see some middle class people feeling bad about their class privilege. So then like the trustafarians, for example, trust funders that try to slum it, so to speak, you just dress and you act poor, which is, of course, super classist and very problematic instead of actually, oh, I don't know, dismantling classism. So you see this Mm -hmm. with a lot of people that are racialized as white. Part of my understanding is, one, they think that instead of just being the kind of basic stereotypical white person that you see manifested in so many different aspects of this dominant society, that somehow they're distancing themselves 
from that conservatism and from the racist baggage of the dominant manifestations of white supremacy that are latent within this culture by playing in someone else's backyard. As opposed to what would an actual solidarity praxis look like? Nope. Bloom where you're planted, beloved. Go back to your family. Go back to your community. Go back to your neighborhood. And instead of bypassing, instead of copying out, heal what needs healing, right? Mm -hmm. So I feel like that's a major contributing factor, but as well, an observation of mine is, and this is quite sad, but I know that a lot of folks who are racialized as white that, and this could apply to some other groups too, that are really appropriative might not know of any value to their culture, frankly. Um, And it's, again, Mm -hmm. tragic, especially for, this is something that I have to be sensitive to in my teaching, honoring that we're differentially situated when it comes to talking about ancestry. And so it might be easy for some of us to know, of course our ancestors are brilliant. Of course we carry on these tremendous lineages. Of course we have so much to be proud of. Of course we have so much that it's such an honor to be able to pass down to our descendants and to future generations. But not everyone knows that. And so, you know, when people ask some deeper questions about what white supremacist imperialism and settler colonialism is rooted in at a whole nother level. You know, this is a sort of um, theory that I hear some people getting into the idea that especially some white folks might not feel like they actually have anything beneficial to contribute globally, which is why they steal from other people. To feel like, look, I do have a so-called healing modality that I can share. Because if you have to go back to wherever your ancestors are from, well, if you're so busy stealing from the rest of us, you haven't been nourishing your ancestral wisdom and your community (laughs) hasn't. So maybe you don't actually know of any of the gifts that you could actually be sharing with others. So... What would you say, how do you engage in dialogue with people? Because as an educator, I know you have more encounters than I do with this. And so what are some practical ways if someone were to observe this to sort of engage in dialogue and challenge their thinking on this? Mm -hmm. What a great question. So for one, I would start with this topic of cognitive dissonance. So to just name at the outset, a lot of people that, and again, we keep it real on this show, so I'm just going to make it plain and be honest. A lot of people that have been unjust for so long don't actually know how to ethically back it up and get clear and get honest about the level of injustice that they have been complicit in perpetuating. And so I would offer an invitation to cut your losses to people that have been engaged in these kinds of practices. So, Mm -hmm. you know, in this moment in time, it's 2017, as we're having this dialogue, do folks that to invoke the fraught language have been culture vultures, and that is speciest. So I'm trying to not use that language. Birds haven't done anything to be associated (laughs) with colonial thieves. So we don't need to bring them into this. We can write out humans and invite them to be complicit without being speciest. So culture vultures and or write um, folks that have been thieves. I would invite attention to the possibility to cut their losses. Do you want to be 
holding on to your attachment to racism in this moment in time until you have to get hit over the head with how obviously problematic your behavior is? Or are you more open to shifting your impact so it can be as good as your intentions, right? So actually transforming your praxis, your practices and how you show up in the world to actually be sort of riding this wave of transformative social change that could be decolonial, that could be actually showing up more reciprocally in balance in this moment in time. Because of course, like you said, so many folks that engage in the yoga industrial complex are just wounded and are just hurt and are just traumatized and in deep need of healing from all of the levels and layers of oppression that we're saturated in. And so, of course, right, you need to do the healing you need to do. That doesn't make you a healer of someone else. So be honest and humble about that. One, do the work that you need to do. And Mm -hmm. then also, instead of hurting other people in the name of your healing yourself, why not don't hurt other people? Um, Why not don't perpetuate historical injustice? Imagine ways and begin to experiment with and play with practicing forms of healing that are actually healing instead of, right, just again, poison fronting as medicine, something that a capitalist sold you as opposed to something more substantive. And again, there's no bypassing. There's no copying out politically and just making things up in our head because at the end of the day, we're either doing that work or we're not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I don't know how it's happened, but we're already actually just about at the end of our time together this afternoon. So I just want to make space to ask, um, is there anything else that you would want to share based on the topics that we've discussed so far? I think we covered quite a bit. (laughs) (laughs) A, a, A lot to think about and hopefully it it's enough to inspire uh, or foster meaningful dialogue around these issues and encourage more thoughtfulness around these issues and increase awareness if nothing nothing else. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, so much more to get into. So this really is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, And again, quite contentious in the sense that the silences that we're surrounded by on this topic are voluminous in this society. Um, So I'm so sincerely grateful to have made the time and the space to be able to begin to get into dialogue with you about this. Thank you so much for your time and energy. Yeah, likewise. Thank you, Anjali. Mm -hmm. For my colonized family, I know that this dominant society pressures us to smile and take it when grotesque shadows of our cultures and traditions are stolen from us, as if we're just supposed to be grateful that colonizers and outsiders think we have something to contribute to the world. Having to deal with the mainstream society's caricatures of us, hey, better a gooder than a terrorist, right? What if we refused to be native informants? How can you reclaim your dignity and the wisdom traditions that you have a responsibility to uphold. I know it's overwhelming to imagine the magnitude of cleanup necessary after the avalanche of disinformation, whitewashing, and doublespeak that appropriators have perpetuated about our cultures. On the other hand, 
I know that some of you listeners may have participated in non-consensual, extractive, appropriative entitlement in the past, and you might be feeling pretty gross about your behavior. You know, that neocolonial injustice that gets reduced to cultural appropriation in mainstream dialogue. Okay, so feel your feelings fully. Just about all of our minds and beings have been colonized. It can be really confusing. And then focus on what you can do to bring about justice. If you've been a culture vulture in the past, I'm sorry, birds, let's unlearn that speciest term. What did birds ever do to be likened to colonizing thieves anyways? Rather, if you've been that guy, what reparations can you make to repair the harm you've done? Because remember, it's not all about you. I invite you to get immensely specific and practical. I'm talking about throwing down time, energy, money, and resources to actual South Asian folks and organizations working for decolonization, aka bringing about balance amidst the imbalance that you've perpetuated. If you'd like to learn more about these topics, check out liberationspring.com, especially for a class titled Our Spirits, Ourselves. All the course materials are available for free on the site. That's it for today's episode of Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I've been your host, Anjali Nathupadhyay, and I thank you for listening. I'm also curious to know what this dialogue evoked for you. I invite you to post your reflections and questions in the comments section below to continue our collective journey of unlearning, remembering, and imagining. If you want to share feedback, such as segment ideas or potential guests you'd like to hear on the show, email liberationspring at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow Feral Visions on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can find our show archive. If you'd like more information on this show's topic or to donate to the project, check out liberationspring.com. Thanks to Catherine Petru and Nicole Gervasio of our technical production team and Climbing Poetry for our theme song. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. And in the meantime, let's make our ancestors proud. The power of the people is louder than the evil. Deceitful and coward, people in power. All power to the people is the hour of the peaceful. Freedom is ours, yeah. Freedom is ours.